Let's continue to worship our Lord together uh, as a body. Now through the uh, sitting under the preached word, let me invite you to open with me in your Bibles to John chapter 8. And we'll begin in just a moment in verse 21. I'll have a start in a way similar to what we did last week, which is to start by looking at a little bit of a broader piece of this. Let your eyes go glance over all of chapter 8 that you may have in front of you there. You'll notice, that I'll point them out here in just a moment, one of the things that leads us through this chapter are a series of contrasts that Jesus puts out to us. There was the contrast that we saw last week between light and darkness. But there are two more here. There's the contrast that we'll see next week, starting in verse 31 and on. That's a contrast between freedom and slavery. But in between those, there's the contrast that our Lord will put to us this morning. Today we face the contrast between life and death. And if you look at those three contrasts and how they're worded, you might see why this one seems to me to be given to us in an especially sobering way compared to the other two. Because while all three of these contrasts point to a future outcome, Jesus is going to describe these three and speak of what is to come, the emphasis on this contrast stands apart from the other two. The other two emphasize the hope of a positive outcome. And that's not what's emphasized here in the way that it's worded. This one emphasizes the peril of a negative outcome. So just notice with me uh, each of these. Verse 12, this was last week. You see how verse 12 ends with a future looking uh, by our Lord. It ends with these words, but will have the light of life. That's a positive looking forward. Look at verse 32, where we'll begin going next week. Verse 32 ends with the words, the truth will set you free. That's future looking and that's positive. But what about our passage this morning? The first half of verse 21, and again the end of verse 24, is going to end with the words, you will die in your sin. It's far more sobering, even in the way that he presents this to us, this contrast. We don't like to talk about dying, do we? And it's difficult to talk about, even when we're talking about the death of a believing friend or family member. Although, as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, in in such cases we don't mourn as those who have no hope, do we? But the matter that our Lord is speaking about here, the matter of one dying in their sin, is maybe the most difficult thought that that we ever consider in this life. Is it not? It's an opportune moment as well, though, because more than any other realm of thought, perhaps, that one forces us to reckon with the truth that we each individually need rescue. We each need a Savior. And our Lord has clearly and repeatedly throughout this gospel made the claim that He is that rescue. He is the source of rescue, the source of salvation from God. 
It would take us quite a while, actually, to work all the way back, backwards to chapter 1 to hear all of the declarations of this. But just to give you a few, working from here backwards. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 7, 37, I am the source of water to the thirsty. John 6, 63, the words that I speak are spirit and are life. John 6.54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. John 6.35, I am the bread of life. We've not even gone very far, working backwards. Do you hear how often this is what our Lord is declaring to those who will listen to him? He's made it increasingly and incredibly clear that he is claiming to be the God-promised Messiah the one that God will send and who will bring divine rescue to a people in need. And so this morning, as he gets so personal and so to the point as to hold out life and death to his hearers this morning, what we hear has everything to do with questions of salvation and specifically with the matter of saving faith. Let's begin by hearing aloud the words of John Chapter 8, verses 21 to 30. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John continues in this way. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself, since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We'll see two different points of emphasis as we're working through verses 21 to 30. First, we'll come in verses 21 to 25, where we'll have emphasized to us the object of our saving faith. The object of our saving faith. The second emphasis will be close to that, verses 25 to 30. What we'll really hear emphasized there is the content of our saving faith. So saving faith is very much at issue here, as the Lord is holding out life and death to those that are listening to him. First, verses 21 to 25, let's hear what is said about the object of our saving faith. 
And we have to begin by understanding his opening statement there in verse 21. Look again at verse 21. So he said to them again, it says again because he had said the same thing back in chapter 7, verse 33. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now, there are a couple of questions that that brings to mind pretty easily. One of them is, what does he mean when he says to them that they will seek him? Why will they seek him? You know who he's speaking to here. They'll be very glad to be rid of him when he is gone, won't they? What does he mean? You will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Well, the point is often made, and D.A. Carson puts it, very well here, so I'll share with you what he says. He makes the point that I think rings true and is very helpful in answering that question. What he argues is that Jesus does not mean here that they will somehow miss him personally when he goes. You think of the future reality that Jesus is pointing to in his departure. He's going to die, be killed, he's going to rise from the grave, he's going to ascend into heaven. That's how he will go away. And when they kill him, they'll be very glad to have him gone, won't they? But the problem here is that Jesus seems to speak about their seeking him in a way that shows a desire. They're, they're seeking him in a desirous way because he says that despite their seeking him, they yet will die in their sin. Despite seeking him, they won't be able to follow him where he is going. So listen to how Carson explains this. He writes this. Jesus knows perfectly well that most of the leadership were only too glad to see him go and did their best to quell the persistent accounts of his resurrection. What is meant, rather, is that they will go on looking for the Messiah, which is why Jesus says, you will look for me. If they do, they cannot possibly find him. They're chasing an ephemeral wisp, for they have rejected the only Messiah there is. It's quite a point for our Lord to make, isn't it? The search for a Messiah from God becomes an exercise in absolute futility after Jesus has come and gone and you have rejected him. And here's the thing. When we start talking about a failed effort to search for and find a Messiah and we think about death, while having failed to search out and find a Messiah, what is the outcome of that picture? Well, the answer here makes very plain exactly why it is that we needed a Messiah in the first place. Because look at what our Lord says. If I go away and your ongoing search for a Messiah apart from me therefore fails and then you die, then you die without the benefits of that Messiah. In other words, you die in your sin. My friends, what does that mean that Jesus' main, central, principal work was as our Messiah? He came doing many things, accomplishing many things, no doubt, in his coming. What does this mean was his central, principal work as our Messiah? It was to bring about could put it this way, it was to bring about the, the fulfillment of the promise that we read about in Psalm 103, verse 12. 
You can probably finish this quote from memory. As far as the east is from the west, what? So far does he remove our transgressions from us. This is what's longed for. This is what's waited for in the Old Testament. And this is what God's Messiah has come fundamentally to do. To take a sinful people and separate from them their sin as far as the east is from the west. He didn't come, first and foremost, to bring us personal happiness in this life. Although certainly unending happiness would be a byproduct of the complete removal of our sins from us, wouldn't it? He didn't come first and foremost to take away loneliness from us in this life. Although what awaits those who have been forgiven of their sin is utterly soul-satisfying fellowship forever with God and with his people. You could go on and on in a list like that, couldn't you? The principal work that he worked as our Messiah is that he removed our transgressions from us. And you think of what that means about the blessings of this life for us. If you're given the world's happiness, all the happiness that this world has to offer, if you're given this world's possessions, this world's success, but you continue to bear your own guilt for all that you have done wrong, what outcome awaits you forever? What outcome awaits you? I wonder if you understood yourself to be in such a position with all the world's possessions and success and happiness, what price would you pay? What goods would you gladly surrender to be freed from that fate? And this is exactly what our Savior has done for us. And in fact, he's done it as what Romans 5.15 and what Romans 6.23 calls a free gift. He's done it as a free gift for his people. But if not for that gift, then what? Jesus describes the answer to that by using an Old Testament expression. He simply says, you will die in your sins. And it seems to me that the, the meaning of that, the, the implications of that description, in a way, are self-evident. Your death will seal the status that your sin condemns you to. You will die and enter judgment with the declaration still over your head, sinner. One in rebellion against his creator, her creator, sinner. And from there, an understanding of the outcome depends on the descriptions that Scripture chooses to give us, doesn't it? And it depends on an imagination that's informed by a biblical knowledge of who God is. It leads you to one place. We referenced Hebrews 10.31 last week, a simple way to put it, where the writer simply said, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I like what one man wrote about this expression, to die in your sin. He noted that while it's used in the Old Testament in several places, no Old Testament author either goes into some kind of a description of the phrase. And so he said this, it is an Old Testament expression, but there as here it is not explained. It points to a horror 
excuse me, it points to a horror that is all the more terrible for being unexplained. To die with one's sins unrepented. To die with one's sins unrepented and unatoned is the supreme disaster. And that might could have been a perfectly acceptable title for this message, for this passage, couldn't it? The supreme disaster. Now the question that our Lord's statements here are really forcing us to consider though, is the question why? Why will they die in their sins? Why will anyone die in their sins? That's the, the responding question that they should have asked him, isn't it? Not the garbage, mocking question of verse 22. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? Some hear them to be mocking in their reply here. Others see it simply as a, um, a display of their confusion as to his intent. But in any event, what it certainly does is it deflects their attention. So that they don't ask the question, why? Why are you claiming that we will die in our sins? However, kindly, he gives them the answer to that question anyway. Verses 23 and 24, we find a two-part answer to the question, why? Why would one die in their sins? The first part of the answer comes in verse 23. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. And we've already seen many times in this study, when John writes about the world, he is not writing about a good thing. He's not writing about a good realm, not even a neutral one. The word in this context is speaking about a world system of rebellion against God. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, Ryan reminded us from the first of this author's epistles from 1 John, that the world and all that is of the world is passing away. 1 John 2, verses 16 and 17. The world is characterized by that infamous trifecta of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. And it's in this sense as well that Jesus is going to say about his disciples later on in John 17, in his high priestly prayer, John 17, 16, he'll say of his disciples, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So you can hear the point behind the first part of Jesus' answer here. Why will you die in your sins? Because you are from here. You are of this world. And everything that belongs here in the world is moving steadily towards death. That's where it is moving. And not just death, but after death, judgment. That's where this world moves. And you are of this world. Judgment? You will die in your sins. Verse 24 is the second part of his answer to the question why. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You will die in your sins because there is one way and one way only to escape such a fate, and that is to trust entirely upon him, upon the one who is speaking to them. 
Now, I wonder, have we heard that before in this gospel? Speaking of a drum that Jesus just beats all the way through his ministry, we're never told uh, that Jesus apologizes for beating the same drum over and over again. The crowd asked him in John 6, 28, what what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And again, in chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You must trust me. You must follow after me. Even the lead up to the famous John 3.16. When Jesus mentions the bronze serpent incident, you remember that in John chapter 3? He harkens back to the Old Testament, the lifting up of the bronze serpent on a pole. He mentions that in making the point that he's making to Nicodemus. And it's the same point as we see here. You are dying. And your only hope is to look to the provision that God has given and believe. And he says there, doesn't he famously, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is what Jesus has been offering. But it's because this is the diagnosis he has been demanding they accept every time he's confronted. And it's very important for us to take notice yet again that this is the drum Jesus is beating. Beginning to end of his ministry, this was his message. This is the message of your Bible that you're holding in your hands. It's simple in that sense. I don't mean at all that there is not here a wealth of understanding and knowledge and insight available to us so that you will study this book for the rest of your life and continue learning more and more all the way till your dying breath. It is and you will. That is true. But it is so easy for us, I think, to develop something of a sense of God's word that this is, that it's this great mystery. There's so many books in between these, these covers. There's so, many, so much time span. There's a lot that's talked about. I hope that we're beginning to see more and more clearly all the time as we do the kind of thing we're doing, as we just walk through a piece of this, of the scriptures progressively, that what it is doing is holding out to us the revelation of Christ as God's given means of salvation from sin and judgment. Jesus Christ as the Messiah is the object of our saving faith. Jesus says here in verse 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now at this point in the narrative, so we're going to look at that phrase, I am he, here. At this point, it's not immediately clear what he exactly is saying. What he literally says is, he says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. He doesn't explain here. He just makes that statement. Usually the words I am are followed by something else. I am the light of the world. That's how you would usually finish when you start like that, right? Ego me, I am, and you would finish. When you don't finish that, when you only have those two words, I am, the, it, it typically jumps our mind into the Old Testament. 
Or it might remind you of that if you've heard some of these things from your Old Testament. Those two words, ego e me, I am, that is the Greek way to translate the divine name in the Old Testament. Like when, Jesus, when, when God told Moses in Exodus 3.14, that he was concerned, Moses was concerned in going to the people that they wouldn't believe him. And he says, who should I say sent me? Exodus 3.14, God says, tell them, I am sent me to you. And in the Greek Old Testament, it's translated with these exact same words. So there's, there's that notion. However, you can use that I am and undefined to simply refer to something that's just been spoken of. So maybe he's just saying, unless you believe that I am how I just described myself. There are, in other words, there are some options right now in the minds of his hearers at this point in the text. And you can tell it's not clear to them either what he meant. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. You can tell it's unclear to them. What do they ask immediately after he says this? So they said to him, who are you? There's confusion. But what I'll ask you to do is just walk with me for a moment through a couple places in this chapter. We're going to go past our text for a moment, see what is coming. He's in a conversation with a group of people, including and maybe directed to uh, the Pharisees. Uh, The conversation for some of them, almost certainly the whole of the Pharisees, the conversation of the rest of the chapter after verse 30 is not going to include them. You see at verse 30, many will express some level of belief in him, and it's with them that he'll continue the conversation. You see verse 31, he said to the Jews who had believed him. So at that point, either some leave and he continues the conversation, or maybe maybe there is a break there and 31 and on is a subsequent conversation, but not with the exact same group. Does that make sense? With that group then, this claim of I am is going to be further clarified. And it's clarified through a conversation about Abraham for the whole rest of this chapter. That's where he's going to go with them. And one way that we could think of that conversation that's coming is that Jesus is progressively bringing his meaning out of the fog and into plain sight about who he has just identified himself to be. He's going to slip things in, like verse 56. Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And they're going to be like, you're not even 50 years old. What are you talking about? And then it comes out, verse 58. Jesus declares to them, Before Abraham was, I am. Now that's said in such a way as to be uh, not ambiguous. By the end of the chapter here, in other words, they're not going to be asking him to clarify. They're not going to keep asking him, who are you? And they say that emphatically with the you at the beginning. It's almost a, who, who do you think you are? Who exactly are you claiming to be? They're not going to ask him that by the end of the chapter. And it will be the first of two times that a group he's talking to will pick up stones and try to stone him to death. So the first point this morning, what is the object of our saving faith? 
Do you see that the Lord Jesus holds himself out as the Messiah sent into the world, whose person and work must be relied on, must be trusted in completely? But even going beyond that, he's already beginning to to reveal to them that their only hope for rescue from their sin is a hope of divine intervention. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And by the time he's finished with this chapter's conversation, his point will have been made abundantly clear. But the question of verse 25 we still need to deal with that question because it leads us to the rest of this section. So now we'll begin looking at 25 to 30. He answers that question when they ask him, who are you? Uh, he, he continues to answer that here. And so let's, let's look at these verses, 25 to 30. But what we'll find is that as Jesus answers the question, our attention is shifted just slightly. Uh, in his answer, we could say that we're hearing not about the object of our faith per se, but about the content of our faith. What is it that we're called to believe concerning Jesus? We'll go quickly through verses 25 and 26. Look at verse 25. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. He begins by making clear that what he's claiming about himself is not something new or different from what he has been claiming all along. In a way, we've already seen that as we looked back a bit. But we know from the statement at the end of this chapter that what he's getting at is he's getting at realities about himself that he shares with the Father. Realities of deity even. I mean, he's getting now that explicit. And even in what has been recorded by John, he has, Jesus has repeatedly claimed a unique kind of unity with God the Father, hasn't he? In ways that have already begun making people that, he, that hear him uncomfortable. And notice that's what he reaffirms in verse 26. The point of verse 26 is all about his closeness to the Father, expressed in his willing and perfect submission to the Father. And I love how he puts it there in verse 26, his answer to them. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. When he says, I have much to say about you and much to judge, I think he means something like, I've got a lot of problems with you people. But he says, but, right, but what? Well, and here's something of a grammatical point that we have to understand that many have made. The word true there is not given as an adjective. It's given as an adverb. And so some suggest, I think this is right, that the right way to put this, uh, when, when he says there, um, I, uh, um, he who sent me is true. Excuse me. You see that? He who sent me is true. The true refers to the sending. So I think the right way to put that is something like, he really has sent me. He truly has sent me. In other words, there is a lot that I could say about you people, but I am here on a divine mission. And my mission is to declare to the world what he has given me to say. Verse 27, they still don't understand that he's talking to them about a divine mission, a mission from the Heavenly Father. 
But you notice, they don't ask a new question, do they? So the question that Jesus is addressing as we go on here is still verse 25's question. Who are you? He is still responding to them. In fact, if you notice, it's not until verse 28 that he even answers that question at all. So what we've seen goes like this. Verse 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Verse 25, who are you? Verse 26 doesn't answer the question. It reiterates that he's on a mission. Verse 27 finishes that. But verse 28, here is where we we find an answer. You want to know who I am? You want a clear picture of who I am and therefore of who the Father is? Because I am here representing him. Where will we find that picture? Where will we find the answer to the question? Who are you? Who is the one that you have sent? We will find the clearest of pictures of who Messiah Jesus is. And the clearest picture of the heart of the Father who sent him. At the cross. He says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. The verb lifted up here happens four times in John's gospel. It's a clear reference each time to his death on the cross. Now, just a quick aside. If you you work like me, some of you, hopefully few of you do, because that would be scary. But um, it might be helpful to some of you to think about this. Because here's a question that came up to me. Well, are we saying that they understood him when he says here, when you have lifted up the Son of Man? Are we saying that they recognized that as some kind of a statement of, of death? How much did they really understand? And I think we have reason to assume that, yes, this is a phrase that they understood. I'll give you two pieces of evidence for that, uh, especially the second one. But first one, remember that John 7 has made it clear that Jesus already publicly voiced the notion that the Jews are planning to kill him. And that chapter also made it clear that many in the crowds are already conscious of that. So the the notion of of him being pursued to death is already a a thing that it's understood. That wouldn't be something coming out of the blue. But the second thing I point you to on that is John chapter 12. John chapter 12 makes it clear, I think, that the Jews do understand lifted up to refer to death. If you're interested, I'll read here. You might look ahead if you'd like to see this. John 12, 32 through 34. He's going to say there, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Do you see the point there? He puts it in terms of lifted up in 32. Verse 33 says, in order to show the kind of death that was coming. To show it to who? To the people that he's speaking to. And their question in 34 is all about a a point of confusion for them. The notion of his death seems to contradict their understanding of the scripture's promise that the Christ will remain forever. So they say in 34, we've heard that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? You hear, they they understand that the lifting up involves a not remaining. So this is not something that they've not been able to put together in their minds. 
So this, you can come back to chapter 8 now. In 828, this is a reference to the cross, and it's one that would have been recognizable. In which case, (laughs) just hear what our Lord says that we see at the cross. We see a display of the heart of God at the cross. And we see the true nature of the rescue that the Christ, the Messiah, the Deliverer, came from God to bring. Think with me about each of those. It's at the cross that we see the highest display of God that he has revealed. We see at the cross the extent of his love and mercy as Jesus voluntarily steps in the place of his people and bears their sins in his body. But at the very same time, we see the extent of God's perfect righteousness, perfect standards, perfect justice. Because at that great exchange of the cross, my sin for his perfect record, when it happens, like Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5, that Christ was, quote, made to be sin for our sake, when that became true of his precious only begotten son, So perfect is God's righteousness and justice that he did not spare his only son. The scriptures put it that way, don't they? That he did not spare his only son. I wonder if we've thought enough about the implications of that, the point that's being made. This is the display of his perfect justice. When his son was the sin offering, he did not refuse to punish sin. He poured out his wrath upon that son. Upon the son who willingly drank it all to the full. In fact, who had come for that very purpose, for the sake of his people. This is what we see at the cross. You could put that another way. This is what we would not have seen were it not for the cross. A God so holy and just that no sin will go unpunished. And at the same time, a God with such compassion and depth of mercy that he will take that penalty upon himself in the supreme act of self-sacrifice. My friends, there is nothing like that in all the universe. There's nothing like this anywhere but in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it becomes then, for us, the very picture of what love is, doesn't it? Isn't that what this author says in 1 John 3.16? By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Jesus ends his statement in our text, with several reiterations of the absolutely unified divine front in this great plan of rescue. The cross, as we see this about God, it is no divine child abuse, is it? It is no angry father being calmed down by his kinder and more loving son. This whole plan of redemption is a display of Trinitarian love. Look again at verse 28. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. 
you will see on display at the cross perfect unity between Father and Son. You'll see what perfect obedience looks like, he says, when I walk to the cross uttering not a word. When I go like a sheep led to the slaughter, despite having all the authority at the disposal of the I am, right? despite the ability at any moment to call down legions of angels, you'll see perfect obedience to the Father. But it is a two-way street, what you'll see. You'll also see the Father's perfect approval of Christ's work. He says in verse 29, He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. The complete approval of the Father will be on display. It's what we see at the cross. Because think, what will the Father do as soon as his Son lays down his life in payment for sin? What will he do? He'll take that thick, giant curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from everyone and everything, separating then the very presence of himself from everyone and everything, and he will tear it in two right down the middle. So pleased will he be with the work of his son finished at the cross. You see, Jesus puts the I am on display as he taught in the temple and as he sat beside the Samaritan woman a few chapters ago and as he commands life into, G- into Lazarus' dead body. But the great I am is not on supreme display until they have lifted up the Son of Man. If God's word, I hope you hear me rightly, I always mean this as a a bad joke. If God's word is telling the truth, when Jeremiah 2 calls God the fountain of living waters, and if it's telling the truth when John 1.4 says that life is in the word of God, then one thing is for sure. The matter of life and death is nothing more and nothing less than the answer to the question, what have I done with Jesus Christ? Do you sense the call of your God, your creator, upon your life this morning, based on what he has brought before your eyes, to believe in his son? To trust the sufficiency of his finished work and in his willingness to save you? We are called by God's word this morning to rest not on some notion that we might be able to please God, but instead to rest on the fact that Jesus has pleased his Father. And that if I but trust in Jesus, that he has pleased the Father on my behalf. This is the hope, this is the offer that the gospel message gives to every sinner who continues to draw breath. And my prayer is that we this morning would do as we read in verse 30. May we believe in him as a result of what we have heard and seen from his word this morning. But as you look at verse 30, it's important that we already see this morning a warning 
in that verse. Verse 30 is simply setting up the grim outcome of the rest of this chapter. These who believe in him here will be the ones picking up stones, 28 verses from now, to try to kill him. So what we must reckon with already this morning is the fact that the picture of saving faith that is held out to us is not simply one of mental intellectual agreement. That is not the picture of saving faith that God's word gives to us. Rather, it's a picture of one running to him, hiding in him, resting in him alone. He's going to use a word next week. It's the word abide. And so maybe this week, in preparation for next week, maybe this is a week to be asking yourself the question, what does it look like to not just believe him mentally, but to abide in him? And that's what we'll look at next Sunday. But already this week, we've seen Jesus point us to the answer. We've seen Jesus point us to the cross. The cross as the centerpiece of all of human history. May we keep coming this week, this day, tomorrow, every day. May we keep coming to kneel before the cross, to rest in his word, and to be washed in his blood. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we we are gathered here as your people gathered together to bring you worship. And oh, from what you have shown us in your word this morning, do we have much to thank you for. Do we have much to worship you for. We worship you for what you have done, But behind that, we worship you because of who you are, because of how utterly worthy you are. We thank you, Father, for the supreme display of that in your love that you have shown us at the cross. Lord, I pray for each of us here gathered this morning that you would not hold back in bringing us to the end of ourselves in sensing the guilt that we live with every day so long as we continue to bear our own guilt. Help us, Father, to sense the ticking clock, to sense how futile are any efforts of ours to atone for that guilt, to hide from that guilt. Oh, Lord, help us to sense the truth of what we've already seen in this gospel. Where else are we to go? Your son alone has the words of eternal life. And so we thank you for him this morning. Father, keep us near to him all the days of our life. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We do thank the Lord for his goodness to us, don't we? Let me invite you to please stand with me. And we'll respond to God's gifts to us this morning with one more song.
Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless faith, His gift of love and righteousness, sworn by the front he came to save, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was sad. go from here this morning with Paul's words in Colossians chapter 3 verses 16 and 17. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. We are dismissed. Go in his peace.